Kids are great, aren't they? They always do as you tell them to do. Every time you want to guide them into some great truth, they listen perfectly, their ears perk up, and they say, please, tell me more. And then they immediately turn and go and do what you want. Isn't that what childhood is all about? Isn't that how it works at your house? I wish that's the way it worked. Sometimes even when we look in Scripture, the great men of Scripture sometimes find themselves on the opposite end of what God has instructed us to do. Sometimes there are men who stumble and fall and yet they turn back to God and yet we sometimes see that there are men who have the opportunity to trust and rely and follow God but fear grips them. And sometimes it's that fear, sometimes it is desire that grips us and causes us to turn away from God. Saul was the man that Israel had been looking for. Last week we saw how Israel had come to Samuel and said, please give us a king, someone, a singular individual who can lead us like the other nations have a singular individual to lead them to war. Someone that we can trust. Someone that we can follow. And Saul, the son of Kish, was that man. Saul, the son of Kish, who scripture says was a head and shoulder above everyone else in Israel. Someone who was a mighty man by human standards. That everyone could get behind. But this man who was a head and shoulders above everyone else showed himself, perhaps, when he was hiding behind the baggage, knowing that, Saul, that Samuel would appoint him king, as someone easily gripped by fear who allows that fear to lead him away from God. This morning, I want us to look at 1 Samuel chapter 13 and look at how Saul fails to trust God and how because of that, Instead of relying on God, depending on God, trusting God, he allows that fear to lead him away from God and what that means for Israel. I want us to think about Saul's lack of trust, and I want us to look at the principles that we can learn from the story for our own reliance in following God. Notice what happens, first of all, as we come over here to 1 Samuel chapter 13 and, and verse 1. And notice how Saul is someone who quickly diverts his attention from following God because of his fear. 1 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 1. New American Standard says Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. Now Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel while 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. But he sent away the rest of the people, each to his tent. Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines, that was at Gibeah, and the Philistines heard of it, and, they, and then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let all the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. The people were summoned to Saul at Gilgal. 
Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. And they came up and camped at Michmash, east of beth When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs and cedars and pits. Also, some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he still was in Gilgal. And all the people followed him, trembling. Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. If we pause here for just a second, we notice the situation. The situation is is that Saul's son Jonathan has, has been able to find some success fighting against the Philistines. Saul is still very young, very fresh in his service as king over Israel. Perhaps just a few months, perhaps even less than that. We're not sure how the chronicle of 1 Samuel has arranged his narrative of of these early days of of the kingdom of, of Israel. But it's a very brief time that Saul has been reigning as king and Samuel has told him previously in chapter 10, I want you to go and wait for me. Wait seven days, and I will come and pray on your behalf. I will sacrifice on your behalf. And so Saul leaves, and he needs to wait these seven days. But in the meantime, the armies of the Philistines are gathering to make war against the Israelites and against Saul. The text here says that they are like the sands of the seashore. Oh, I love walking on the sandy beach. It's so nice and warm. But that's not the quality that the chronicler is recording for us. He's recording for us that the sand of the seashore is that great beach that you look upon and you can't possibly count the sand beneath your feet as you look across that beach because it is so... So, so, such a great multitude, so great in abundance. There's no possible way that you could say this is how much sand is here. And in the same way, he uses that analogy to say that's how many of the Philistines had gathered together in comparison to the few thousand of the Israelites that were there. But there's something else about this account that we need to keep in mind. And that is that the Philistines in antiquity were one of those peoples who had mastered the ability to frame weapons and to, to, to build weapons. And they knew how to mold and shape iron and metals. But the Israelites did not know how to do that. And so everyone in the ancient Middle East depended on the Philistines for their ability to shape these weapons. Notice verse 19. Now no blacksmith could be found in the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, Otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines, each to sharpen his plowshare and his malik, and his axe and his, his hoe. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel, and the plowshares and the mattocks and the forks and the axes and, the, and to fix hoes. Uh, so it came about on the day of battle that neither sword nor spear was found in the hands of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan but they were found with Saul and his son Jonathan 
So in other words, when you looked at the people of Israel, the only ones that had actual weapons of war were Saul, the king, and Jonathan, his son. Everyone else had farm equipment. The Philistine had iron weapons. So not only were they outmatched by number, they were outmatched by weapons of war. You know, one of the things about being an American, at least till recently, was that you knew we had a large standing army and Air Force. Don't want to forget those guys, right, Ed? And Navy. But not only did we have a large military, but we also had the top technology. And that provided security for our country because we knew that as long as we had this large army, this large military that was well-equipped with technologically advanced weaponry, nobody would mess with us. But think about being in a country where the opposite is true how scary that would be, especially if you knew that there were neighboring nations that wanted to do you in. And that's Israel. Ancient Israel. They are outgunned and outnumbered, as we might say in Old West literature today. Outgunned and outnumbered. And so here Saul, the new king, he has called the people to himself to do battle, but when they get there and they see the battle lines drawn and they see the number of the Philistines and they look at their plowshares and the swords of the enemy, they hide in the caves. They hide in the bushes. They abandon the army. They go over to the other side of the river to escape what they know is certain annihilation. And what is Saul going to do as king? Saul does what you and I might say is a wise thing. And that is, he wants to cry out to God. There's nothing wrong with crying out to God, is there? But he didn't do it in the way that God had prescribed. Notice verse 8. Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring me the burnt offering and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. So why don't you get the picture of this? Day seven comes. It's morning, perhaps. And Saul's looking around. He says, Samuel said that he was going to come and make this sacrifice, and God was going to be with us. But as the day goes on, there's no Samuel. And so what does Saul do? He says, my goodness, we've got to... We need to sacrifice to God. We need to cry out to God. And I can't blame Samuel or Saul for feeling that way. Could you? Doesn't that sound like the right thing to do? Isn't that what we should do when we find ourselves in crisis is to cry out to God? But Saul made a mistake. 
because God had a specific order. There's really two elements to this order. One is that the prophet of God, the one speaking on behalf of God, said, wait seven days, and when I get there, I'm going to make the, uh, the sacrifice on your behalf. But the second part of it is, when you go back to the Levitical Code, in, in the book of Leviticus, in Leviticus chapter 10, I believe it is, we learn that no one other than a priest is to make a sacrifice. And Saul was not a priest. God had appointed him to be a leader, a king over Israel, but not a priest. And so Saul makes the sacrifice for himself. And as soon as he's done, guess what happens? He looks up. Who's coming down the road? Samuel. Just as Samuel said. Have you ever done that? Looked at your watch and think, well, we might as well just do it ourselves. And as soon as you're done, whatever your appointment was, here they are. Sometimes we get so anxious. Fear grips us that we act on our own instead of being patient. Is there a lack of patience in the world today? I think that there certainly is. We're so used to our microwaves and our instantaneous results that we can't simply be patient. Just sit back, be patient for a minute, and wait. Let's find out what happens to Saul and Samuel. Verse 11 says, 1 Samuel chapter 13, But Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the appointed days, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Notice the language that Saul uses. Saul has a problem. We're going to notice this in our study of 1 Samuel, that Saul has a problem of always wanting to blame someone else or something else. In this circumstance, he says, when I saw you didn't come, I forced myself. I didn't really want to do it, but I just had to do it. I had to force myself. I knew it was wrong, but when I saw you weren't going to make it, I had to do it. And so he says, I had to seek the favor of the Lord. I can't blame you for that, Saul. But you didn't follow what God wanted. And so Samuel says, Saul, what you've done is not good because you haven't followed the commandment of God. Again, number one, wait for me seven days, I'll come and make the sacrifice. Number two, only the Levitical priests were to offer a sacrifice. Samuel was raised in the priesthood. In the, in the family of Eli, raised by Eli. And so he served that role as priest. As we saw last week, his sons were to serve as judges. And he was a judge, raised by Eli, ready to make the sacrifice, but Saul doesn't wait. So Samuel says, verse 13, you've acted foolishly. Verse 14, he says, but now... Your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, 
And the Lord has appointed him as a ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Then Samuel arose and went up to Gilgal at Gibeah of Benjamin, and Samuel numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. Now Saul and his son Jonathan and the people who were present with him were staying in Geba of Benjamin, and the Philistines camped at Michmash. When we read this story and we stop at this point, the, the message that we see is that Saul should have trusted God. But he was gripped by fear, and I can't really blame him in his fear. If I, if I were a king, especially a brand new king, and, and, I, and, and I saw people scattering, there's two things to that. There's two problems with that. Number one is, I'm going to win my battle, right? If my army is running away from me. But it's also a statement of the people's confidence in me as their leader. When people scatter from a leader... That's a statement in their confidence in that leader. And so Saul had big problems. One, he wanted to win the war, but two, he saw his kingdom slipping away, perhaps. And so he says, I have to force myself to make this sacrifice. But you see, God already told him, I'm going to have my man, my prophet, my judge, Samuel, make that sacrifice for you. Here's how I want you to offer and seek favor from me. And Saul violated that. He violated the Levitical code of offering a sacrifice himself. And he violated the commandment that he had directly from Samuel and from God to wait seven days for that sacrifice to be made. He took on himself an authority, a responsibility he did not have to make a sacrifice. Left to the judges, left to the priests. He took it upon himself to do something else. As we look at the story, and we can appreciate the circumstance that Israel's in, I can appreciate the fear gripping the nation. I can appreciate the fear gripping the man Saul. But sometimes we have times in our lives when there are things, there are crises in our lives in which fear can grip us. And in those moments, we have a choice. We can take matters into our hands, our own hands, contrary to what God has directed us, or we can trust God and do things the way God has directed us. Sometimes that's unclear. Sometimes there may be circumstances in our lives that don't match up exactly with what Scripture has told us. You know, Scripture is not a a, a a voluminous series of books that says every little detail that happens in life. And so sometimes it's hard to, to, to know exactly what I ought to do. But for Saul, that wasn't the case. Saul knew exactly what God wanted him to do. And there are times in our lives when we can make choices that are clear-cut. Sometimes we have to dig into Scripture and really be prayerful. God, what is it that you're asking me to do? But Saul didn't do any of those things. Saul said, I'm going to be trounced in battle. I'm going to lose my kingdom. I'm just going to make the sacrifice and hope that God's going to be pleased with it. I'm going to go against what God has said and I'm going to hope that God gives me his favor. And sometimes we can do that. 
individually and as a church. I know God has said something else, but I'm going to do my things my way and hope that it's going to be okay with God. I'm going to do things my way and hope that God says it's no big deal. And so we can learn some lessons as we look at this story of Saul's lack of trust. Mere good intentions are not enough. Saul had good intentions, wanting to seek the favor of God. And so sometimes we can have good intentions, but just having good intentions does not meet what God wants us to do in terms of our faithfulness, our reliance on Him. What do you make of this phrase that God uses through the prophet Samuel when he says that God is seeking a man after his own heart? That's going to be something that's applied to David later on. David's going to blow it time after time after time. But his heart was with God. We're going to see David murder. We're going to see David commit adultery. If if David were standing right here before us today, I think most of us, many of us at times would say, David, you're a dirty, rotten scoundrel. You're not someone I can associate with. But David repented each time, humbled himself, and went back to God. He wanted a relationship with God. He trusted God. Saul didn't do that. Saul doesn't seem to be someone who is interested in following God. His intentions here seem to be good, but his heart does not seem to be in the right place. God has specific things he wants us to do. God wants us, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. That requires me to make a decision in my mind. I have sin in my life. I need to get rid of it. And here's what Scripture says is the way I do that. I need to be old enough, capable to make that decision. I've got sin in my life. I need to get rid of it. Here's what God wants me to do. Ananias tells Paul, Acts chapter 22, uh, Why do you delay? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, that baptism now saves you, not a removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a clean conscience. That's what God wants me to do. And yet sometimes we have good intentions of of believing in God, loving God, trusting God. I think all those things are good. We need to do those things. But see, God has a specific plan that he wants us to do. And as a church and as an individual, sometimes we can tell ourselves, it's okay for me just to go and do something else. God has a plan, just like God had a plan for Saul. And he expects us to follow his plan. Sometimes we tell ourselves we can do what we want to do and just hope that things are going to be okay with God. But that's not the same as obeying and trusting God. The second principle that we see is that we can trust God. God would give a victory to Saul and Jonathan. They would rout the Philistines. 
But you see, it was through the power of God. And sometimes when we're in the midst of a moment of fear and we look around and everything seems to be against us and, and the world seems to be against us and we don't know how we're going to make it through. You see, sometimes when that fear grips us, we tell ourselves, we've got to do something else. We need to change the way we worship. We need to, to change how we reach out to the world. Because doing it the, the way we've done it in the past isn't going to work. By the same token, sometimes we're so fearful of, of wanting to reach out that all we do is just sit in a room and say, if it's God's will, they're going to come to us. God wants us to reach out. Let's not be unclear about that. God wants us to, to be wise in the way that we reach out. Let's not be clear to that. But God doesn't want us to change the principles of his truth. He doesn't want us to change the message of our truth. He doesn't want us to, to change how we teach the truth. He wants us to trust him. One of the big things, one of the big problems that we have as a, as a brotherhood, I think today, is a desire that says, look, if we're going to be as big as this group over here, if we're going to be as big as this group over here, we need to completely change everything that we do. We're going to change the way that we worship. We're going to change the way that we follow God because that's going to resonate with people better. But there's a problem with that. And the problem with that is we forget what it is to be a disciple of Christ. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe everything I have taught you. And oftentimes today, we just look at other churches, we say, we want to be as big as everyone else, and so let's change what it is to be a Christian. But you see, a disciple is someone who follows Christ. And when we change the formula, when we change what we do as a church, simply so we can have bigger crowns, and we don't teach people what it is to submit to Christ, we're not teaching folks how to be disciples. Do you know the word Christian only appears three times in Scripture? And each of those three times, the context suggests that maybe that was a negative term that people outside the church applied to Christians. When you read the New Testament, the term disciple is what the church applied to the followers of Christ. A patterned submission of following Jesus. Where Saul got in trouble is he forgot to trust and rely on God and do things God's way. And sometimes we can get in trouble when we change things up just so we can have big crowds, just so uh, we can feel better with other folks, interact better with other folks. And we change up the basics of Christianity. We change up the basics of worship. And we let that fear grip us. And God says, you may have had good intentions, but you didn't follow what I said. For Saul, it was disastrous. Samuel comes and says, God's taking the kingdom away from you and giving it to someone who's going to follow me with a whole heart. We don't want God to look at us on the day of judgment. 
and say, you may have had good intentions, but you didn't follow me from the heart. As a church and as individuals, we want to be the person that's standing before God in which he says, you followed what I said. You were in the blood of my son Jesus, and you stayed in the blood of my son Jesus. And because of that, you get to enter into my rest, enter into my home. We want to be disciples of Jesus because God has a plan, and if we follow that plan and trust him, we will realize the fortune, the riches of being in our Father's home. If that's where you want to be this morning, why don't you come? Just together we stand and sing.